0: Um, but but when you when you do that, what you get is mediocre talent and you get mediocre results, you know. So it's important to give some of the, the functional leaders in, in your team the opportunity to take charge of certain areas that that are not your specialty. And I think it's important to make that investment or plan to make that investment as soon as you're you're financially able.
1: Hello and welcome to the AOU podcast, Entrepreneur Leadership in Africa, where we explore more on being a bold entrepreneur leader. I'm your host, Savannah Olo, and today I have with me Toyin Otulate. Toyin is the founder and CEO of Alori Beauty Enterprise. She is a seasoned customer goods and FMCG senior management professional with over 16 years of multinational corporate experience in retail management and distribution, strategic development, and that is just a few of the list. Today we highlight transitioning from the corporate world into entrepreneurship. Are there any questions you may have before jumping into the entrepreneurial world? Are you wondering if there are any cliches that come with being a female entrepreneur? Or maybe you're just looking for inspiration to take that leap of faith and do it. Well, stay tuned and know it all. Join us as we uncover a whole new world from our diverse community of entrepreneur leaders. Ladies and gentlemen, join me in welcoming Toyin Odulate. Uh, Thank you so much for being with us today, Toyin. Um, Thank you for taking time out of your schedule to be a part of the ELU podcast. We're so happy to have you today. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. (laughs) So I decided to kick off this episode with a small icebreaker. And I know you're passionate about art. So what is your favorite art piece you currently hold and what's special about it?
0: Um, Well, I have so many art babies. It's so hard to, I saw that question. I was like, how am I going (laughs) to choose? But I would say right (laughs) now, um, what I'm loving all over again is um, a couple of miniature pieces that I just received from an artist called Alimi Adewale. He's a Nigerian um, artist. Um, Very well-known. And the second one um, that I I acquired maybe late last year is by another artist called Soji Adeshino from his Boxer series. So I would say those are my two um, faves right now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Great. So what are some of the common reasons people move from corporate world to being an entrepreneur? Getting straight into it.
0: So, so I think so I think there are a bunch of reasons you know different people have different different reasons you know some people have always you know harbored the desire um, where they say you know they prefer to be their own boss and they're just tired you know there's that common common reason um, another is that you know some people find an opportunity um, and they feel that with their their experience they're in the best position to. Um, take advantage of that opportunity um, and capitalize and capitalize on that. Um, so, so I, so I think there are a bunch of varied reasons why people go from corporate to entrepreneurship. And then some people do it and then realize that it's not for them. So, um, and and that it's not so simple to to run your own business or manage other people or convince a buying public to buy your products or services. So it, it really depends on the reason. And I would say people should be careful when considering that.
1: What, what would you think are the biggest uh, misconceptions that come with moving from corporate to being an entrepreneur? Um, pe-
0: people think it's easy and it's not. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's really not easy. Um, it's not easy managing people um, on your own. It's not easy running a business from an operational standpoint. Um, you you kind of have to be um, the jack of all trades, you know, the operations, the supervisor, marketing, commercial, um, you know, managing finance, managing accounting. You know, there's so many things. And then if you have investor money in your business, you have to manage those expectations and manage them very carefully at the same time. So yeah. I, I think, but I think the biggest misconception is people think it's easy and it's not.
1: So what are some of the biggest roadblocks that you faced maybe like in the first six months after your transition?
0: Um, For me, I I would say, I I think it it was literally the transition was, was my biggest roadblock, even though um, mentally I, I had been preparing for it. So it wasn't a sudden transition. I had been, Mm -hmm. I had thought through um, and I was, I'd been thinking about it for at least 2 years before before I did my transition. So I was very methodical with my um with my transition, but I think the biggest roadblock was literally the transition. You know, so you go from managing hundreds of people <laughs> to um to an office where the echo is just your voice. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, you can't pick up the phone and call IT to fix a problem or to- right Or or things like that. It's it's a very humbling experience, and I think I underestimated what that transition was going to be like. And it was very lonely as well for for those first few uh, for those first few months after. But you know, you 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 keep at it, and you get over it, and then you move into into the meat of the business. Um, You sort of have no choice because it's like I'm in it now, (laughs) so I just have no turning back.
1: Exactly. So what would you say were the biggest um what would you say were the biggest um learning points or skills that you acquired, maybe in the first six months um of of, of starting your business and you know learning how the industry works on its own?
0: Um so so in the first six months it was um literally accountability, um, you know, being a, accountable for every single thing that um that I do or, or that we do. And record keeping, w- it was very, very important. I, I was already very um, sensitive to that anyway, um, um, yeah. but, it, but it became more pertinent to me that, you know, we spend one cobble or one cent there has to be um, accountability and record keeping for that. So I think that was maybe the first thing, I wouldn't say that I learned that I, I was just very conscious of get, getting into a habit of doing, immediately. Um, speaking often to to my board of advisors, um, I'd already had them um, advising me before I went fully into entrepreneurship. So it was important to keep talking to them because they're kind of like, they kind of serve as your sort of business therapy. You know, yeah. when, you, when you hit um, an issue or a conflict and you need to think it through or, or talk through it with someone. It, it helps to have an advisor or a couple of advisors who are in your camp, who um, are very generous, generous with their time to talk those things over with you and help you dissect um, issues and come up with solutions to them within the business.
1: All right. So why Olori Beauty Enterprise? And what, what, what significance does the name have? And you know, could you tell us more about your journey like through coming up with it, and you know your your journey investing and and building it into the empire that it is now.
0: Huh. Um. So so why allery beauty? I've I've always had a passion for beauty products for as long as I could remember. As, as long as I was old enough to or tall enough to rummage through my mother's cosmetics pouch in in her bathroom. Um, I've. <laughs> A, a passion for for beauty and for beauty products, um, and it's funny. I, I recently came across a, a tiny little notebook that I had at age twelve or thirteen, where I wrote wow. down. <laughs> it, was, it was so weird. I found it in my old bedroom, my parents' house, and I'd written down, you know, all these cosmetics companies that I was planning on founding at some point. I, I mean, it, it had a different <laughs> then. But I had like a whole list of about six of different things that I was going to do. So, um, so I guess just goes to show that the passion has been there for, for a long time. Um, I'm from a family of, of beauty enthusiasts, um, first of all. Um, second of all, in terms of the name, the, the name Olori means queen in Yoruba, which is a, a, one of the major languages indigenous to Nigeria. And um, it was a nickname that my father had for my mother um, while we were growing up. So when I was trying to come up with a name to call the brand, O'Luri just seemed to, and I was in maybe third year of college at the time um, in the States. And I think um, it just seemed perfect because I couldn't, I found that every time I wanted to buy makeup or foundation or lipstick, I had to mix two or three different colors to find or to customize it to my skin tone and they were, you Your know, shade. yeah, to my shade. So there were little, zero options back then. This was, um, you know, in the, in the nineties when I was in college. And so I thought, you know, the name Olori encompasses, um, you know, there's a queen in every woman. And I thought it was just the perfect platform to build uh, a, a beauty brand from. I, I thought any black woman or, or, uh or any black woman of African descent anywhere in the world can relate to bringing out the queen queen in her so that 's how the idea first started. It first started as a makeup or or makeup company initially but by the time I founded Uluri many many years later, <laughs> um, you know i I had been working and, and pursuing a, a very busy um, corporate career, and by the time I finally started Oluri. I started it by accident, um, and it was a hair accident, a hair coloring accident I had at the salon, and my hair texture was a mess from the coloring um, process, um, where my, my hair felt like hay, literally, and my mom just makes this concoction that um, she had always used to <laughs> Literally, you know, she'd always, you know, she, she was always, my mom was always mixing potions when we were growing up. I mean, she still, she still does coming up with all kinds of recipes, but she'd always use this to care for me and my sister's hair when we were growing up. And so she just mixed it again for me and I used it to deep right. hair and it literally reversed the texture of my hair overnight. Um, and I just thought, wow, I need to jar this. Um, and that's literally how Laurie started. I, I gave about 20 jars or samples to about 20 of my friends. Um, they all loved it and kept coming back to ask for more. And I realized that I couldn't afford to keep giving it out for free. And that's literally how, (laughs) you know, we put it in our first jar and that's how we, 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 we became commercial. And before that, I had always thought that, um, I would execute on a very fancy business plan. I had written tons of business plans mm. for three over the years. I would raise a million dollars. It'd be very, 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 very uh, sophisticated. And I would roll out this business. And in the end, you know, um, the mom and pop route that I was looking to avoid is how we started and how we started to build the to build brand to, to what it is today. So that's the short version think- of
1: the story yeah (laughs) that's the short story (laughs) um so I think I think that those are one of the challenges that a lot of people face like personally I've been trying to start a business for quite some time but self-doubt one two finding the right conditions and always thinking about the right conditions to start the business in are the things that really stop me from you know really pursuing the dream or the goals that I want to because like I don't have enough money to do this I don't have enough uh Merge to ensure that my friends will like it, or the people that I don't know like it, like how can I get people to care about it even more so um how how did you get people to care about you know your product or invest in you' Because <clears throat> looking at the situation right now, the Covid crisis has affected um investing in African startups so how how do you think how do you think we can curb this or how do you think we can empower more people to invest in businesses? Or startups in African countries. Well,
0: well, first of all, you know, to, to your earlier comments, there's there's no right time to start to start a business. You you literally have to yeah. go, yeah, you know, with with the tra- the traditional roots, which is your gut, and just get it started. You you know, and all you need is that one believer to to start to to motivate you to, to start. And this was an issue that, that I had. For many years, which was that I I over overthought the process of starting, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I mean, we'll talk about it later. But um, but I I really overthought the process of starting, and by the when I finally started, I just started. I, there was no fancy plan behind it. It was just orders just kept coming in for for our, our main um, deep conditioning product at the time, um, and we just. Um, and I would just find myself fulfilling orders when I come home from work um, in the middle of the night and, and then you know sorting out deliveries in the morning before I go to work. Um, but with regards to um, your question about COVID, I, I think in a way, this is actually a fantastic time to get an investor to um, look at your project or your proposal because they have more time now Um, they're not rushing around, um, from meeting, um, they're not rushing on calls. Um, they might still be inundated with, with emails, but chances are they're opening those emails a bit more now because people are just literally slower. You know, we, we, we've been forced to slow down. So I, I I think COVID is a fantastic time. Yeah. Um, to have a few people or a few potential investors read your proposal, chances are um, if you compare the, the pace of life now to the pace of life a year ago or this time last year, they have time to read your stuff. You know? so, and it always helps if yeah. you have yeah. someone that can put in a word for you um, chances are that they'll open the document and check out the proposal. And if it's something they're interested in, you'll get a response. So I, I, I think I think COVID has actually yeah. given investors more time to consider um, more project, more interesting projects. Because now they're looking; they have the time to to consider interesting business projects um, that they can potentially in, invest in. Because you know, COVID is here, but it, it, will, it will also pass. And you want to make sure that um, whatever it is you're working on has already, you know, hit the desk of a potential investor, so that when they're comfortable, you know, writing those checks again, you're 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 top of mind.
1: Great. So. What is the first thing you advise African startup founders to do to expand their businesses via um, various funding mechanisms?
0: Um, I I I think people have to be um, open to, uh, to to different you know funding platforms or, or processes. Um, crowdfunding is one, um, and even though the, the process of crowdfunding yeah. is um, is, 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 is a Western concept. It, it's a very old traditional way of, of um, raising money in, in Africa, right? Um, which, is, which is, you know, getting, which is a, a fancy way of saying friends and family. So I think you, you already have your network of friends and family, pull out a lot of spreadsheet, Come up with a list of 50 names, whittle that down to 20, whittle that 20 down to, to about 10 and start to talk to them about, you know, um, about your your startup or what it is it that you want to work on. I think I, I grossly underestimated the friends and family route because initially I thought, oh, I, you know, I don't want to bother my friends. I don't want to bother my family to give me money towards my business. Yeah. Um, but when... When I found it difficult to raise money through the more sophisticated platform via either VCs or private equity, which I was, I was too small and not ready for at the time, um, you know friend, the friend, my friends and family network, which i'd built over my career um, yeah. also underestimate the networks that they 've built over your over your career, you know they 're not meant to just sit in your LinkedIn profile and, you know, where you're just sending emails back. The the reason why we build networks are to leverage those networks when we need them, you know. Um, as long as the integrity issue, the honesty issue, the loyalty issues are, you know, it's it not there. But, it, you know, networks are meant to be leveraged. And if you have a good um, startup or you have a good concept on your hands, you know, um, if, if one person on investing, that person is likely to bring others on board. Um, And that's what happened in in my case. So I think that would be uh, my main advice to African startup founders. Um, You know, dig, dig into your networks and your networks have their networks as well, right? Yeah. You never know who might be interested in what you're doing. Yeah. And and you just, and, and, and the, the little that you're able to do, you know, with each accomplishment every hour of every day, I can assure you, um, someone's watching, someone's interested and, and eventually you will get that yes. And you will get that first check. It's, it's always difficult to get the first check, but once, once you get the first check and you're able to demonstrate value, um, for, for your potential um, co-investors or, or co-owners, um, you know, the, the sky's the limit.
1: This podcast is brought to you by Venture by AOU, a free course for entrepreneurs. Do you want to know how to overcome entrepreneurial challenges from real life experiences? Well, Venture is an online course designed for young and aspiring entrepreneurs. It features more than 10 AOU entrepreneurial leaders who will guide and inspire young entrepreneurs. You can find Venture on venture.aoueducation.com Once again, venture.aoueducation.com Venture. A course for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. Now back to our conversation. (laughs) Alright, so what are some of the challenges African women entrepreneurs or African entrepreneurs rather encounter when they're on the lookout for new investors? Um, I, I think the challenge
0: that um African women entrepreneurs face is that on the investor side, um there are not enough African women on the other side of the table. Right. who, um, who can appreciate the, the sensitivity towards towards the concept of what it is that you're proposing. I, I think you know, once we're able to balance out, you know, the demographic of, of the other side of the table of, of entrepreneurship, which is on the investor side, to have more African women um, in the position of authority, in position of um, with the, with decision-making abilities to, to write those checks, I, I think you'll see a difference. And what tends to happen is you have the the boys network and the boys tend to do very well with their boys network. And right. or you know, and, and within that boys network, you have you know the the boy entrepreneurs, the boy investors, his friends who have the ability to contribute and, and write those checks so so their network tends to be very tight and we don't have the same when it comes to when it comes to women and our in our networks. So I, I think that other side needs to be built and developed as well. And and that's the challenge and that's that's the it's a huge gaping hole. I mean there are some women investors um, but hardly enough hardly enough
1: but, but would you say would you say having this sort of like boy clubs mentality within the investor side would involve, um, uh, maybe men having a more risk um, incentive to 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 actually partake in like investing certain things and you know wanting to always take a risk and see what the ROI might be as opposed to women.
0: Um. Yeah. So you know. So, so I guess by by nature we're we're not. Um, as big risk takers, and and you you can see, you know, you can see the the result of that. Um, You invest in a a woman-owned startup or a woman-owned business or concept, um, chances are your ROI is higher. You know, there's a higher um, uh, sense of responsibility, um, higher you know a lot of thoughtfulness goes into decision making um, and even if you're going to take risky decision making, I can assure you that from a woman's perspective, she's thought about it a million times before making that decision. and there's a lot of value that those abilities um, um, brings to the table for 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 a business that has either women leading or women running it or women, you know, founding it. You know, the Boys Club is is what it is. You know, we're, we're not trying to dismantle it. <laughs> you know, it is what it is and it'll be there. For but but I, I think that there are distinct opportunities on the, because there are a lot of women-run businesses already, you know, um, across the continent, whether formal or informal. Um, but I think, that not enough women are thinking about being on the other side of the table where they're in the position to write these checks to help develop more women-owned businesses into help them evolve into bigger entities, more successful entities.
1: Yeah, all right. So based on the challenges you've mentioned, what are the ways African start- startups can circumvent the pitfalls that they're, they're experiencing?
0: Um, so, so when you say pitfalls, what, what, what do you mean specifically? I, I saw this question and I thought, hmm.
1: So you talked about, um, women not being able to necessarily, um, have a seat on the table as, as much as men do, uh, as well as, you know, new startups or entrepreneurs trying to look for investors and finding it hard to, um, pitch themselves or, uh, find the value in what, um, the ROI can bring in for their investors. So, how? What are some of the ways African start, startups can, you know, curb the fact that these are the things that they usually think about, but when they're in the situations, they wouldn't know how to handle themselves.
0: I, I think I think it's very important to um, to have to have advisors on on your on your um, not necessarily on your team, but to have access to advisors that have your back um, and have some sort of an influence in some of the you know some of the decision making that takes place, you know. So um, I, I think that's very important. Um, where you, you can you can you know w- when you share the the issue um, with with a set ad- advisor, you know, he or she is able to help you think through. The concept, and maybe give you another way to, to approach it. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's one, and it's also important to have the right and capable people on your team. Um, and ideally, these people on your team should be smarter than you. I mean, it's it's, it's your idea that you're bringing to the table, but you know, I I, I see that. Also, a lot of women run businesses that have challenges with certain functional roles with, within their businesses. For example, you know, don't want to pay for top talent, et cetera, et cetera. Or they feel that you know, you know, sort of circumvent that and save money. Um, but but when you when you do that, what you get is mediocre talent, and you get mediocre results. You know, so it's 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 important to give um, some of the, the functional leaders in, in your team. Um, the opportunity to take charge of certain areas that that are not your specialty, um, not your your forte you know so the the business in general is your idea, but you should right. have very smart people around you who can help to execute, who can walk into these rooms with you, um, answer investor questions about finance, about operations, about marketing, about commercial etc. That one or two, depending on the size of your business, of course, one or two people for that. And I think it's important to make that investment or plan to make that investment as soon as you're, you're financially able um, in in your startup. And it makes a difference in the sort of value that you're likely to, you're very likely to deliver at the end of the day, because... Man or woman, um, nobody wants to, do, you know, invest in a business that is not going to give make them proud um, when they're reading about it or, you know, seeing it on TV or hearing people talking about it. You know, they want businesses that are going to give them value, that's going to make them proud. And, you know, founders cannot do that by themselves. You know, fa- founders think, should not feel that they're an island onto themselves, you know. You're you're, you're the founder, you've brought the idea to the table. Now it's time to get, you know, um, capable people that will help to execute and take your ideas to to the next level and the next level after that. Very important.
1: All right, then. Thank you so much for that. Um, Thank you for the insights you've brought in on this episode. I think it's remarkable to see how um, your skills from corporate have really um, been applied into the entrepreneurial space that you're in and now that you know you have an Olori beauty enterprise and you know it's something that you've been passionate about like you've known your purpose from such a young age that um, seeing it and actualizing it and actually living in it is is remarkable to also you know experience so I just want to thank you for your time today. Thank you so much I appreciate that. And that was Toyin Odulate, a boss lady in power, CEO and founder of Olori Beauty Enterprise. And she says that there's never a perfect time to start a business. Just do it and you'll get over the hurdles as you go. But have a plan. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. You can also find us on Spotify, Anchor and Apple Podcasts for exclusive access to all the gems of knowledge we drop here. Remember to subscribe to this podcast on your preferred platform. This is the AOU Podcast, Entrepreneur Leadership in Africa. Real stories, real experiences.